Before we get into this week's main section, I wanted to go over, so that I don't have to remind myself to save time at the end, uh, to go over what we're doing next week, which is that we won't be meeting next week, but you have your first reflection or case study or whatever word you want to call it to make it feel good (laughs) assignment. And yeah, so... I popped, let me actually, let me just pop the link into the chat here too. I created a document that has all of the instructions from the syllabus in it, but it also has some additional instructions as well, hopefully make things as clear as possible. The bottom line on this is that there's not a right or wrong way that I'm looking for this to be done. More, it's that I just want to see or hear or watch you wrestle with these topics in relation to an actual coaching conversation or an actual kind of reflection on your own experience with work or your own values or your own worldview, whatever it might be. So this isn't, I'm not grading these. I'm not giving you a pass or fail. This is just a process. This is an integral part of actually learning the material. It's processing it and applying it. So that's what this is. Okay. So I gave you a few different ways to submit it. Ideally, I would like to have them by our Ideally, I'd like to have them by October 18th, which is our next live meeting. You got from this Wednesday to next Wednesday, and then from the Wednesday, from that Wednesday to the next Wednesday. If you need more time than that, please let me know. It's not a problem at all. Um, I just know that it's nice to have a due date on things <laughs> so that you can plan for them. Um, but there's a couple of different ways to share um your reflections there, either with me directly or with the group, if you would prefer. And then, yeah, so this can be written and it doesn't, I don't care if you proofread it. I don't care if it's the best thing you've ever written. Like stream of consciousness even is perfectly fine. Just so much that I can follow along, hopefully. Fairly short, 500 to a thousand words. It's like a blog post, not one of my blog posts, but like a regular blog post. (laughs) And then, or you could do three to five minutes spoken, three to five minutes video. It's about the same number of, it comes out to about the same number of words. Whatever medium you're most comfortable in, if you are a verbal processor and you really like to talk things out, by all means, turn your mic on and record it for me. That's fine. If you prefer to write things out, cool. If you want to make a diagram, if you want to draw a picture, honestly, I don't care. (laughs) Just as long as I can follow your thinking and see how you're processing this stuff. So that's the, the main thing. And then on the second page, I gave some ideas of the direction that you might take a reflection. You don't have to do one for each week. Just one for these first three modules is perfect, Um, but I gave you an example sort of from each module. Any questions about this assignment for next week? I just don't want anyone to feel nervous. There's no reason to be nervous. (laughs) All right. If you have more questions or if you have questions about it, let me know. No problem. But 
you've got that's this document is in the session four folder. It's linked to the syllabus, all that stuff. You know where to find this stuff at this point. I also have it linked up in Clarity Flow. Okay, so that's the assignment for next week. Let's get into this week's goodies. Where'd it go? There it is. Okay. So this week we are talking about managerialism, surveillance, and bullshit jobs. And I added in a section on value capture, which we touched on a little bit last week around performance reviews. And I realized it was like the missing piece of the puzzle to what I originally had planned for this week. I think that we there's a chance that we might not get all the way through to the end, but I actually think what I threw into the middle is super important and really necessary and more important than actually where I was going to end things. So I just wanted to give that heads up. And I can always record something out outside of class if we don't get uh, quite through all of it. But so yeah, so we're talking about surveillance, managerialism, and bullshit jobs today, as well as value capture. And we're going to spend a good bit of time actually on value capture because I think it really drives home for a lot of this what what happens on a daily basis for a lot of us. So let's start off by talking about managerialism. And managerialism is, as it's defined here by Thomas Clickhauer, an ideology. So very similar to where we started in the first week with work as a worldview, this is managerialism as a worldview, as an ideology. And the idea of it is that you can establish a systematic way of running an organization or running your own business or running anything based on how you track data, how you follow best practices, how you move information through the system, et cetera, et cetera. And this is something that we see literally everywhere now, right? And that's largely a product of the also ideology we call neoliberalism. It's this idea that everything runs better if it runs like a business. The government works better if it runs like the business. Business, A classroom, a school works better if it runs like a business. A family works better if it runs like a business. And we have all of these different institutions that then get reduced and simplified to metrics and tracking. And if this, then that kind of commands and these more rigid hierarchies and rigid systems around actually operating the thing. And a lot of this feels, it feels good because it feels certain and it feels, oh, if I just do this, that, and the other thing, then this will run well or I'll know what my place is, or I'll know what I'm supposed to be focusing on, what my priorities are. But underneath that sort of superficial, this feels safe and good system is a whole lot of nuance and context and just reality that we end up ignoring until it comes raging to the surface and we can't ignore it any longer. And this is part of Clickhauer's definition of managerialism as an ideology in that he talks about how one of the tasks of managerialism as an ideology is to 
cloak the reality of a given institution based on contradictions. So we know, you know, the government runs on contradictions. Our families run on contradictions. Schools run on contradictions. Beautiful things happen because of contradictions, right? But when we try and flatten all that stuff out, it becomes easier to track, comes easier to surveil, comes easier to put it into a math equation that you can adjust the variables on, but we lose out on all of that nuance and context um, that really describes reality. So that's like a primer definition of what I'm talking about when I talk about managerialism. But to, I think, make it a little bit more concrete, let's do a really brief history of this concept of management in the first place. So you might have heard me go through this history before, but you're going to hear it again because it's important. So back in the very early 20th century, we get this concept called scientific management. And Frederick Winslow Taylor is the uh, dude that comes up with it. And basically, this guy was not big on workers. And he thought that the workers on the shop floor that he was the foreman of were lazy and not working as fast as they could and not producing as much as they could. So he came up with this idea that he would time people doing their different tasks, look at the different ways, observe the different ways they were doing their tasks, and make each process as efficient as possible, putting in a certain expectation of exactly how long it was, say, going to take to add the rivets to this particular widget, right? Okay, that should take you one minute, 17 seconds, anything longer than that. And you're going to, I'm going to, I don't know, probably do something horrible because this was like factories in the early 20th century, right? You're going to lose your job if you can't do this in, in a minute, 17 so that's what he's looking at. And it was very much a system of surveillance and control and conformity and making everything as efficient and productive as possible. It was a system of maximization and optimism directly aligned with the trajectory of capitalism at the beginning of the 20th century. And of course, we can see echoes of scientific management in the work that we do today, right? Like I think about the commercials, the ads that I hear on podcasts, like for ClickUp or Hello Monday or any of the project management apps. And it's all, how are you, are you doing this most efficiently? Are you communicating efficiently? Are you collaborating efficiently? Whoever heard of efficient collaboration, right? But we see this imbued in our work today, such uh, to the point where we're actually starting to call this surveillance state or the surveillance components of work today, digital Taylorism. So scientific management is also referred to as Taylorism. And now a lot of the tools that we have around project management and productivity are sort of part of this larger project of digital Taylorism and trying to get knowledge and information work to fit into these very rigid models as they did on the factory floor in the early 20th century. So as the 20th century progresses, we get to a, the, the point where larger and larger organizations are being developed, where 
essentially office work is invented in the the way that we think of it now. And so management science takes a lot of the assumptions and attitudes and understandings of scientific management and starts applying them to the organization. So how should an organization be organized? How can it be organized more efficiently, more productively? How can we optimize the organization of this corporation? How do we maximize profit, right? So this is where management science comes in and it starts to it starts to apply to a broader understanding of how work gets done so that it's not just an individual task or the production of an individual good, but really applies to how an organization as a whole functions. And then finally, now we get into managerialism, where those same ideas apply to everything, so that everything we do we're looking at how can this be quantified? How can I judge this? How can I make this more efficiently? How can I figure out how to make this more effective? And it's not that asking a lot of those questions is a bad thing, right? Yeah, I want to work efficiently and effectively too. Of course I do. I Yeah, like all of that stuff, I that's important. And it cannot describe all of reality. It can't describe human relationships and human interaction. And so we get this very superficial, very simplified, very reductive idea of what running a business or working together looks based on this ideology of managerialism that we apply to just literally every institution today. We see it in nonprofits. We see it like the whole effective altruism movement is managerialism applied to philanthropy, right? Um, and so this really is just an incredibly pervasive part of how we think about work, but also how we think about life as work as well. Any questions about? that stuff so far. Cool. Keep going. So here's where we're going to get start thinking a little bit more about how these kinds of measurements apply to your own work, for instance. So take a moment and just consider like, how is your own work reduced to simple tasks or to measurements that can be managed in this way, looking at how do I make this more productive? How do I make this more efficient? How do I do this in less time? What are some of the metrics or measurements that you're looking at on a regular basis? Do any come to mind for you all? I'm not sure if this is a good example, but every month I track my, I call it like marketing metrics. So LinkedIn followers, email subscribers to see how they track. Yep. No, that's a perfect example. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Perfect. And we'll get into like why and how that mm -hmm. that can, it's not, again, it's not that doing that is a bad thing. Obviously doing that is a great thing. And if all you focus on is that, it's really easy to miss the bigger picture. Uh, Ash says words written per day. That's a good one. Oh. Susan tracks her time on projects. Ash also says email interactions and link clicks. Pomodoro method from Rachel. Yeah. So this is, this is, it's just literally everything. 
we do is part of this larger ethos around management and applying this scientific lens to how we optimize our work, even more creative or relational or care-based work. And this is one of the things where, you know, I say that our work has changed, but the way we work hasn't. Managerialism is one of the, the crux of that idea in that our work today is, at least in our kind of sphere, is knowledge work, it's creative work, it's relational work, caring work. And that stuff can't be managed in the same way. And yet, because managerialism is so normative, we find ourselves in these ruts of how do I measure that? How does that scale? How do I do this more efficiently? When sometimes the answer is it doesn't scale, you can't do it more efficiently, and there's no way to measure it. And that's fine. <laughs> and that's really hard to accept for a lot of people, especially when we've been raised in these systems from a very early age. Now, part of this managerialism then is a regime of surveillance. And surveillance I'm using as a very broad term here, even though I have the fun little surveillance camera on, on the slide. This is everything that sort of tracks your work, right? So it could be managers or you as a manager. It could be paperwork. It could be filling those spreadsheets out with your social media or marketing metrics, right? It could be software that you use to track your time or your projects or your effectiveness. It's also a lot of self-surveillance. Most of us, I don't think, have managers or we are managing. And so we're, we embody that management ethos in ourselves and apply it to our own work and the way we run our businesses. And also, we develop not only the active capacities to surveil ourselves, but a passive or internalized ability to surveil ourselves. And this is something I see so often where it's like, it's such a source of anxiety, diffuse, persistent anxiety, because we're trying to, in the back of our mind, trying to figure out, is this working or is it not working? Did I move the, the needle on this measurement or didn't I? And it's it can be a source of a lot of stress, especially for those of us um, who, like me, really attach a lot of self-worth to achievement and effectiveness. Uh, Ellen says, I have a really strong internal clock from keeping track of one hour coaching sessions all the time. That reminds me of, oh God, I forget his name. The book is 4,000 hours, right? 4,000 4,000 hours, 4,000 weeks, I think. Weeks. Thank you. Yeah. He talks about the internalized sense of time, of clock time specifically, because there's many different ways that we can measure time or many different ways that we perceive time. And clock time, is something that is a complete construct, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that we can internalize clock time means that we've internalized a construct uh, that is economic and mm -hmm. political in nature rather than something that's embodied. Thank you, Oliver Berkman. All I could come up with was Oliver in my head, and I could not remember if it was a first name or a last name. <laughs> so thank you, <laughs> Oliver Berkman. That's right. <laughs> 
Yeah. So that's the surveillance piece or the surveillance piece really goes over this whole topic. But I find that it's something that a lot of people who are thinking about how they can work differently, how they can relate to work differently, they're not noticing it. They're not noticing the ways they surveil themselves, the ways that they're managing themselves in old patterns of management. And it makes it really hard then to make real substantive changes to the way they work, which kind of goes back to the immunity to change idea that we talked about last week. Okay, so this is an excerpt from something that you didn't have in your reading, but I think really sums up well what we've covered so far today. And I love this book, but it's not, it's totally accessible. It's just, it's not published by a a large press. It's published by a, a small to medium press and accessibility wise from actually getting it is, I don't know, you can get it on Kindle. Anyhow, it's a book. So I didn't link to it because I was only linking to articles and shorter things. Anyhow, the book is called (laughs) Lost in Work, Escaping Capitalism, and it's by a scholar named Amelia Horgan. And I'm just going to read this quick because, like I said, I think it just sums up everything really well. So she writes, The capture of data in the first place changes the kind of work that even those not directly hired to work with that data do. Consider teaching. How do you record data on something so inherently relational and reciprocal? The first step is to change the tasks involved in a given job so that they can actually be recorded. Measuring something changes it. In this way, neoliberalism creates perverse incentives. Instead of doing the stated tasks of a job, more and more time is spent recording partial or totally one-sided representations of that work. These are then used to shape the parameters of the future conditions and terms of that same job. In doing so, it creates a new reality through distortion. So I love, I don't love, but I appreciate her observation that as work is managerialized, as it is, as we assign measurements to it, as we reduce value to these very trackable things, it actually changes the tasks that we do. And this not only sums up sort of this idea of managerialism and how it impacts us and how it impacts the way we surveil ourselves. But it also sets us up now to talk about value capture, because what she's describing here is this system of value capture that uh, philosopher C.T. Nguyen um, has described. It's this idea that having a metric will change the way you actually approach the work And it can even change the tasks themselves that you do. And that's not necessarily for the better. Sometimes it might be, but often we end up doing a whole lot of work that means a whole lot of nothing just to move the needle on a number. Okay. So let's talk about value capture. So this is from Nguyen's paper, How Twitter Gamifies Communication, which is a super fun read if you're a nerd like me um, and you enjoy reading philosophy papers about social media. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. Let me, I want to pull in uh, Rachel's comment here. She says, this reminds me of the fraud at Wells Fargo, where millions of fake accounts were created as part of a measured reward program. A hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. That Wells Fargo issue was exactly what Horgan just described. And it's exactly what value capture is as well. You create an incentive or you create a metric and it changes what people do. And that's that's part of the reason we do that, right? We want to change behavior, but it often has these very serious, excuse me, very serious unintended consequences that we would all like to avoid. Okay. So value capture, it happens in three parts. First, we recognize that what we value is nuanced, contextual, and hard to manage, right? So to use Amelia, uh, to use Horgan's example of teaching, how someone learns, what someone learns, the effectiveness of teaching is nuanced, it's contextual, and it's really hard to manage, right? And so we could think about what does effective teaching mean to me? What does effective teaching mean to you? I'm sure if you asked just about any teacher, they'd give you a slightly different answer to that question. Um, So that's the sort of the heart of that nuanced, contextualized, uh, hard to measure value. Another example here, um, one that I hear from a lot of folks is impact, right? We value impact. We want to make our work to help improve people's lives. Um, but what, it, what does that mean? What is impact? And how do we measure that? What does it actually look like to do work that helps improve people's lives? Again, each one of us could have a slightly different answer to that question. And yet, we do our best to find ways to measure it, right? Once we acknowledge that, yes, what we value is hard to measure, We also have to recognize that we exist in a lot of contexts that actually require those simplified measurements and that those simplified measurements are often quantified. And we do this because we need to track and compare disparate information points, right? So the example that Nguyen gives on this step frequently is GPA. It relates to the teaching example too. So this is perfect. So he talks about GPA, grade point average, as this way of taking every student's learning and reducing it down to a single number, right? So not only a number for each class, but then a number overall that's an average of those numbers. And what does that grade point average mean at the end of the day? Not a whole lot, right? And But he talks about how we don't have a lot of choice in this area, that most schools don't have the resources to quote unquote, grade students through subjective feedback, right? We can't say, all right, Johnny, this year you did really well in history. I think you might want to spend some more time on the Civil War era and the Reconstruction era, but you really nailed World War II. Right? We don't have we don't have those kinds of resources where a teacher can provide feedback on learning on a student by student level. So that's why we have grades instead or number grades. So not only do we have a measure of an individual student's supposed learning, but we also have a way to compare Johnny to Sally, 
right? And we can say, oh, Sally's grade point average is higher than Johnny's grade point average. So therefore, she must be a better student. She must be smarter. She must be better equipped for the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oof. Yeah, Rachel, I feel you. Mine's a sophomore and she's obsessed with, is this good for me for college? I don't know. So that's the second piece. And with with our, excuse me, with our impact example, we can think about social media. Uh, On social media, we often are talking about impact being measured by metrics like shares or follows, right? Is my is my account growing? Is my list growing? And thinking, oh, if more people are following me or more people are sharing my work, then I must be having a greater impact. But that's not necessarily true. That's not what we're measuring. We're measuring how many people have signed up to an email list or how many people have shared your content. It's not a qualitative measure. It is a reductive quantitative measure. It's not a bad number to track, but it doesn't mean what we often think it means. And then from there, given those simplified measurements, they become the focus of our action. So that instead of prioritizing, say, making an impact, we're prioritizing getting more followers. The things that you do to get more followers are not necessarily the same things that you do to have a greater impact on the world or on your people. And so we start to see action diverge from something that would uphold those nuanced, contextual, hard-to-measure values to something that manipulates the metrics that we've chosen to track. So again, to what Horgan said, measuring changes things. It changes the actual work that we do. Even if that number is not even directly related to our job, right? If we're at a larger organization, the organization might be tracking a particular number and that trickles down to the kinds of tasks that we're assigned. Okay. I'm going to give you what? Wait. Oh, okay. So I, there's, I I wanted to give you um, sort of a way to think through how this actually happens. And so I came up with these five questions, pretty straightforward. First, identifying the metric that you're interested in exploring. Second, thinking about what that metric claims to measure. Third, what does it actually measure? Or uh, Yeah. What does it actually measure? How does that metric align with a meaningful value to you? Or in other words, how is that metric? Why does that metric matter? Why? How does it connect to something that's actually important to you? And then finally, how might you assess the value, uh, that value, the thing that's meaningful while retaining more of its richness? Is there a different way to track your progress? Is there a different way to assess? Maybe track isn't even the right word. Just is there a different way to check in with yourself, with your work, with what you're doing to see um, whether it's actually in line with the thing that's important to you? So I'm going to give you an example of kind of working through these questions, and then we're going to do it together as a group. This one is from my personal list of things I hate to be asked about, which is podcast downloads. (laughs) This is the most egregious form of this. Susan, I knew you'd appreciate this. Okay. Podcast downloads is a metric 
that a lot of our clients at Yellow House get really worked up about, even though it is the dumbest metric. I wrote, I just wrote like 3,000 words on why this is the dumbest metric a few months ago, but I digress. Podcast downloads, very stupid metric that people get very hung up on. The metric claims, or we assume the metric is measuring how many people listen to a podcast, but that's not actually what podcast downloads measure. They measure how many times the file for an episode has been requested by a device. That is not the same as listening, right? I can't tell you how many downloads of podcasts are on my phone that I've never listened to and that I won't, but they're still there because that's just how it works, right? That's what a download is. When we get obsessed with this number and we do things that are going to move the needle on that number, we're not necessarily doing things that reflect getting people to listen to the podcast. We're doing things that influence getting people or or rather getting devices to automatically download the podcast. Very different. Um, now, at the heart of this, of course, people care about podcast downloads because they want to impact as many people as possible. They want to have as many listeners as podcasts or as they possibly can. And download stats ostensibly assume, uh, yeah, ostensibly help assess whether or not a show is growing, but it doesn't really do that. So because of different tracking relation limitations around podcast statistics, there's actually no good way to track the number of people that actually listen to a podcast. But instead of fixating on podcast downloads, I can be thinking about more qualitative uh, measures like the kinds of personal responses I get from people or the kinds of ways that I see people sharing an episode or for me, an article based on an episode in social media. I don't track that stuff. Uh, it doesn't go in a spreadsheet somewhere, but it gives me an idea of how people are engaging with the content so I can figure out whether people are listening or not. And then I have to get really comfortable with the idea that I can't know. I can't know how many people are listening. And there's a lot of metrics that we assign a great deal of weight to in terms of certainty. And this number describes reality when in fact it does no such thing. And a lot of kind of getting more comfortable with focusing on what we actually care about is getting comfortable with uncertainty. So... I want to give you um, a couple of minutes to play with this for yourselves. And what I thought I would do is um, I am going to pull up a whiteboard here. So let me switch, stop this. I'll find the whiteboard thing. I'm loving this because then we get these nice documents um, that we can share. So what I have here is all the questions that I just went through. And from here, I'd love for you to volunteer a couple of metrics that you'd be interested in dissecting. So things like follows or page views or 
dollars or whatever it might be. Go ahead and shout out a metric you're interested or pop it into the chat. And then as a group, we'll descend on those metrics separately and work through this on our own. So who's got a metric for me? All right. I think that was Rachel said email open rate. That sounds like a good one to start with. Does someone want to volunteer a second metric? Revenue. I heard revenue and I see LinkedIn followers on from Susan. Let's see. Let's do... Meeting attendance... Okay. Susan says she changes her vote to revenue. Let's go with revenue. And what I'm going to suggest is that you pick one, pick either email open rate or revenue. And on your own, we'll be, I'm going to turn my mic off and be quiet for a little bit. Answer those questions from your perspective. So you don't need to worry about what other people are doing, but go ahead and put a post-it note into the box and describe, okay, email open rate. What does that claim to measure? Revenue. What does that claim to measure? And then email open rate. What does it actually measure? Right? And you don't need to do both. One or the other is fine. If you'd rather not work in public and just jot things down or try, go through a different metric, that's totally fine with me as well. So I'm going to shut up for a minute and give you a little bit of time here. We'll take about eh, four minutes or so, and then we'll come back and discuss. Sorry, I kept moving it back. <laughs> I think it's back to normal.
Okay, we're going to start wrapping up here. Again, it is so much fun to watch you all type these things out in little post-it notes. Also, I love whoever wrote oof um, in the revenue column. That's delightful. I agree. Oof. <laughs> okay. I think everything that I see here makes a ton of sense to me. I think you're thinking about this right on track. Ash says that was me. Oof. So what I'm curious about now is having uh, taken a little bit of a, a dive into these two metrics, how have one or the other or both actually impacted the work that you do? How has it changed your tasks or how has it changed the way you think about what you're supposed to be doing, what your priorities are? Anybody want to share? How focusing on these metrics? Oh, Jamie. I think the thing that comes up for me with revenue is that, excuse me, I recently had like a burnout thing happen that I feel was really directly related to focusing so much on how much money I was making to the exclusion of things that I actually care about because I need to make money to survive. There's that and life is expensive, but it was not good for my mental health. And so I was making decisions or like about where I was focusing my energy and my time and everything, right? Just based on making money, Mm -hmm. which is not energizing. No, no, that's, yeah. Was there a second part of that question? No, that, okay. I think that was it. I think that was the main thing. I'm just, I'm, your answers put me in a place of, oh God. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> a little, there's a little PTSD there. No, it was a little unhappy memories. Anyone else? How's focused, focusing on one of these metrics changed what you focused on or how you did your work or how you thought about what was important? I put it in the chat, but just for emails, like we do have a, a subscriber email, but we don't consider it like a real lever in our mm-hmm. marketing toolbox. It's more of just a lights on kind of activity. So we just don't put a lot of weight into it. Yeah. Is it is it something that you do because... So if it's not a lever for you, but you want to signal that you that the lights are on. Is that a meaningful action for you? The, Probably that not. sounds like a leading. Okay, <laughs> I'm I'm not trying to lead you. I'm like legitimately curious. No, yeah, it's basically taking our blog posts and just sending it out to people who have subscribed to it. Mm-hmm. So it's not an extra lift per se, but it's even the kind of the same with our blog. Does it really do a lot for us? It's more like if someone decides to check us out, we don't look like mm-hmm. we dropped off the planet in the late nineties or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I totally get that. Yeah. And the reason to your point about it not being like an extra lift, I, that's a really interesting component of this for me being that a lot of things that aren't a lot of extra work create extra opportunities for surveillance and metrics tracking. Mm, and and so even point. then, maybe it takes you another 10 or 15 minutes to turn a blog post into an email. Now that you've got an email, you have 
an open rate, you have a click-through rate, you have just the number of subscribers Mm -hmm. number. And now you've got at least three new nodes for changing your priorities, right? A hundred percent. Like I just, and that's one of those things, like after being in business, this company for nine years, I've gone so many times back and forth on that dang subscriber newsletter. (laughs) I think we're just going to exit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that the idea of you want to make sure that the business appears current when someone lands on your website, that's a great thing to be thinking of, but how else might that be accomplished? It can be as simple as taking the dates off your blog posts, (laughs) right? Yes. I really don't like having dates on blog or I, I shouldn't say that I don't like it. The only reason I have dates on my blog posts now is because I publish so frequently because that's my business for the most part. But in terms of having content on your website that's good and evergreen, why have dates? Who cares if you publish it in 2012 if it's still a good article, right? And just taking the date off is, oh, it's current. You totally did that. And it is so much better as a result. (laughs) But but thank you, Tara. We're going to remove that subscriber newsletter because I was on the fence yet again. That thing's out of (laughs) here. Yeah, I can't imagine that you all get many clients from email marketing, if any. No, no. No. Yep. See, and that'll lead us really nicely into bullshit work, too. (laughs) All right. Any questions about this idea of value capture or how surveillance and, and tracking and sort of reductive metrics can actually change our priorities, change what we spend time on? I've had this thought coming up. I'm going to leave my video off just because I'm like, I'm feeling surveilled. I don't want Mm. (laughs) my Mm. camera on me right now. (sighs) And that has brought up this other question of what is, what are the creative risks or innovative actions that workers are taking underneath this idea that they're constantly being monitored? And I just, I wonder what the other payoffs are through this constant monitoring. I don't even want to ring a doorbell that has one of those little cameras on it. (laughs) Yeah. It's so hard. Even with the, I don't know if you saw in the chat, but as soon as I added the Zoom link to my meeting series, my read AI popped in and I told it to get lost. It's things like things that are tools that are supposed to be helpful. The reason I started using that was to free me from taking notes so that I can mm-hmm. be really here in the moment. But then I feel icky. Like there's that creep factor of folks knowing that their words are being verbatim recorded and that's not a natural human thing. So that's where I get to that crux of what's good versus not good. And do I go back to furiously taking notes? I'd love thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I would love to hear from other folks. What are your your experience or how are your experiences with sort of the surveillance regime that we're working and existing in? I have uh, a, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was going to say at the day job, one of the things that we have worked really, that's actually a really big challenge for us is we have a unusual work culture. We're very asynchronous to accommodate for people's different schedules. Slack exists, but it's really only a medium of I'm talking directly to one person. It's not like a company-wide. We don't have, we have announcements channels, but that's about as far as it goes. And one of the things we actually have a really hard time with when we onboard people is convincing them that we don't care when they're working. Um, I had to adjust all of our onboarding to really build in things like, I genuinely don't care if your Slack dot is green or not. I don't give a crap. Yes, track your time to a task, but I'm not going to look at how many hours you're tracking for the for the week or whatever. It's mostly to make sure that you're not working too much. But it is weird to watch people come in and to have to build so much unlearning into our onboarding. It takes me like six months to really convince somebody like, it's okay if you go to your doctor's appointment in the middle of the day. Please stop telling me. I don't care. And so it's weird to watch it happen and to realize how bad it is in most companies and then try to figure out how to deprogram people as they come in. And it's taken us I think it takes us about a solid six months or so for people to actually feel comfortable going to a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day and not telling me about it. I'm impressed that it only takes six months because with Shannon, it took five years and it was still (laughs) like it, (laughs) it, like it. So we build it into our onboarding. Like, yeah, the onboarding is asynchronous and we Mm. try to say, here's about how long it takes people. But that is a range of sometimes it takes people a week. Sometimes it like we have built two weeks in this for you to do it. Almost everybody like powers (laughs) in three days. And I'm like, yeah, slow down. Go back and reread stuff. But the, yeah, it's just wild watching people do that. We also have unlimited vacation that we actually mean is unlimited vacation. So like people come in and will be like, oh, my dad died, but I'll be here tomorrow. And being like, please, please don't. <laughs> like it, it is, yeah, it's a real window on what's happening in the quote unquote real, real world. Yeah, that perfectly sums up everything that we are talking about today. And it's funny, the ep- the podcast episode I have coming out tomorrow, I'm talking around professionalism and the ways that professionalism is really sort of white supremacy and surprise, or in, in not in surprise, in disguise. And that's part of this larger imperial colonial project, et cetera, et cetera. But it also has part of my interview with Charlie Gilkey in it, where we talk about that sort of one of the things he says is systems are enduring and self-correcting. And one of the systems that we need to identify as people renegotiating our relationships with work is actually our internal surveillance system around what we should be doing, how we should be spending our time, what is good or not. And if we don't systematically unpack that and keep working at it, it just goes back to the way it was. So yeah, I think that's I think that's great. And then to piggyback off of Rachel's question around like 
this more immediate surveillance of AI and data tracking and all of that, I think part of what we need to be considering is like, what are the compromises that we're making? Because one of the reasons that AI tools are amazing is because of the accessibility element, right? To be able to have closed captioning on things that's at least passable most of the time, or for me to be able to take this meeting, pop it into the script, get you guys not only an easy to listen to recording, but also a transcript that's not terrible. That's amazing. And to me, the trade-off around the, the potential surveillance or the, not potential, it's for real, the for real surveillance of the AI recording that data to be able to provide that service to you is really I, to me, that is a reasonable and worthy trade-off. But so often we're not, we focus on one side of the equation because the uh, we don't realize the other side of the equation even exists, right? It's hidden. It We're not thinking about it. The thing that I'm always thinking about is like the labor that we put into making the owners of social media companies lots of money by just making stuff on social media that is their entire product, that's that hidden labor, that's part of the compromise, right? And so for me, I think a lot of identifying whether surveillance is worth it or not, whether just how we're thinking about these different pieces of the puzzle is like looking for what the hidden components of any of these equations are? What's the hidden labor? What's the hidden cost? What's the hidden sort of exclusivity around something? And trying to reveal that in order to take a better accounting of what I'm actually looking at any given time. Any other questions or comments? Hey, Tara, it's Rachel. Yeah. The- Rachel, I just, I am, as I'm here, just engaged and listening, I'm so grateful, A, that I have moved myself into kind of a job or jobs that don't have a ton of metrics. And in the DEI consulting part of our work, there's so much tension between like the leaders who want the metrics and then us pushing back to say relational things are much harder to measure. So we have to step back before we jump in. But I had mentioned like attendance of meetings. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I just, I have spent my whole like working life getting people, trying to get people to come to things or, (laughs) and I'm realizing, oh my gosh, that is a metric of like when people are available or what it's not the actual, are they engaged? And so in that people work, just realizing all the work that can go around that metric that doesn't really measure. And I know that's the point that we're making here, but I'm even on the simplest of metrics, it can be like very all consuming and it's not really meaningful or it's only aligned with something else. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, oh shoot, I had a thought about that and it just flew out of my head. I hate when that happens. Meeting attendance. Yeah, I think it's such a good point. And 
meetings can be so many different things to so many different people, right? And I don't know how he does it. He loves it. It is his lifeline to the rest of the world. And for me, it's, oh my God, I have two calls today. I'm going to die. And so I will avoid a meeting at all costs. He knows this. I try to avoid meetings all the time. Uh, He hates it. But there are real legitimate reasons. It's not like I'm disengaged with a a project or I'm not interested or I don't care about that person. It's that I really hate. There's a whole lot of stuff that goes on for me in a meeting that is unpleasant in my bones. right? (laughs) And that is there's an accessibility component to that. There's just a, there's a life component to that that's really important. And I think anytime we're looking at a metric and given that I, I don't want to give the impression that I think metrics are bad. I'm a numbers person. I love metrics. I love quantifying things. I love seeing how these different data points all work out. That makes me really excited. And I think it's really important to ask what that measurement is not measuring, what it's not taking into account. And so if meeting attendance is like, this is an important thing for me, this is something that I want people to show up and be engaged, what am I not measuring when I'm measuring attendance? I'm not measuring the, like you said, the schedules, the availability. I'm not measuring whether or not someone feels really seen and surveilled, right? Like in a meeting, whether they have anxiety, like it's not measuring all of those things. And so it's all, I think in that way, it can be helpful then to come up with alternative measurements too. Like maybe attending meetings is not a thing that Sally needs to do, but instead she's going to do this other thing that's going to let you know that she's engaged or like also what does engaged mean? Like, what is the actual value there? We have these, we have all of these metrics, especially around people that are so like jargon, like employee engagement. My God, what is that? And then Gallup comes out and says, I don't know what the number is. 33% of workers are engaged at work, which means like 66% or not. Really? Oh, no, that sounds ridiculous to me. But then it's, okay, what are we measuring when we say engagement? And yeah, so I think the biggest takeaway here that I want for all of you is looking at, okay, our world works in metrics. Metrics are fine as long as we recognize that metrics don't represent reality. They're not the whole picture. They're not the only way to investigate what's working or what's not working. And if we allow ourselves to get caught up in the the metrics without interrogating them, we will end up changing the work in a way that we don't actually want to change because it's not in alignment with what we actually care about. And I don't mean even like what we care about in terms of like mission statement, what we care about as in is this thing working or not, <laughs> right? Yeah, track revenue because you got to make money. Is the thing that you're doing because of the way you're tracking revenue actually helping you make the money that you need to make? Because a lot, I, you know, from my experience with business owners, the answer is no, 95% of the time, right? Yeah, anyhow, that was a whole big thing. I want to make sure, 
we get at least a little bit of time to talk about bullshit work because it directly dovetails off of all of that. So I'm going to go back to my screen. So this idea of managerialism, of tracking and metrics and surveillance, it creates more work. It not only changes what we do, but it also adds this layer of tracking. Tracking is work. Thinking about these numbers, considering what we might be missing, like all of that as work. So uh, Amelia Horgan talks about this in Lost in Work too. This stat I find staggering, but she says in the US between 1975 and 2008, the number of college faculty grew by about 10%, while the number of administrators grew 221%. I think you talk to any professor, any person working in higher education who's actually involved on the education side, and they spend so much of their time doing paperwork do in meetings that then all has to go to administrators who finagle that stuff, right? There's this whole infrastructure of people dealing with the data, dealing with the metrics, the measurements of higher education and very few people actually teaching higher education. <laughs> Again, that stat just blows my mind, but I think it really perfectly encapsulates the way that managerialism adds work to our plate, even when we say we're doing all of this for efficiency's sake, for optimization's sake, like this is going to save us time in the long run. It might save one person time, but it's going to create a job for somebody else who is going to spend 40 hours a week massaging spreadsheets, right? And that is what leads us directly to bullshit jobs. I'm not going to read this whole quote. I just wanted you to have it in with the rest of this material. But I do love this first line. Graeber writes, hell is a collection of individuals who are spending the bulk of their time working on a task they don't like and are not especially good at it. <laughs> and like when I'm on social media or when I was on social media before I basically quit social media for the most part, like that is a description of the people I see, quote unquote, doing their social media work, right? They're doing a thing they don't like, that they're not especially good at, and that's what they spend the bulk of their time doing. It's bullshit work for them, right? It's meaningless. It has no bearing on their outcomes. Oh, Ash, I'll get to that in a second. It has no bearing on outcomes. It's not connected to anything that's important to them in any direct way. If you get underneath the surface of it, even just a little bit, you can you can really it, people are are can see it pretty quickly. But because it's just that I should be doing this, these are the metrics I'm tracking, et cetera, et cetera. They don't think about it. It's just assumed. Yeah, I'm supposed to be doing this. When Graeber talks about bullshit jobs, he's talking about, whoops, he's talking about work that is that extra layer. It's, and he has a, a few different categories of it that's in the book. So if you do read the, the full book, you'll see these different categories. And I don't want to get too into the weeds on that here, 
What I'm most interested in is this idea of tasks that are made up, are pointless, unnecessary, or as he writes, even pernicious. These things that we do for work, as work, that aren't helping us, aren't helping others, are things that we've made up because we think we should be doing them, or things that actively cause harm. And so I want to broaden Graeber's idea of what a bullshit job is to think more specifically about the bullshit we create for ourselves, which I will call bullshit work. So I think hopefully all of us here feel that our work is impactful and meaningful and has a point um, and is not harmful on an overall level as a whole I believe in the value of my work and I love to do it and I'm glad that I'm here. And that doesn't mean that I can't create bullshit work for myself or that I haven't in the past or that there isn't some component of my work that's bullshit that I could get rid of. Also, there's nothing better than being able to use the word bullshit professionally. It's a real exciting development for me. I wanted to come up again with a rubric of like, how can we discern whether a particular task or set of tasks is bullshit or not? And so taking his definition here of jobs that are primarily or entirely made up of tasks that are pointless, unnecessary, or even pernicious, and are identified that way by the worker, right? He's very explicit in saying that he can't tell you whether your job is bullshit or not. Only you can decide whether it's a bullshit job or not. So if you have work that maybe is pointless and unnecessary to someone else, but it's meaningful to you, then it's not bullshit work, right? But if you are defining it that way, if you can see it for what it is, then that's bullshit. <laughs> so I've got four very simple questions. And these are the kinds of questions that I have asked in coaching conversations for years, often about social media, also often about building an online course or offering a group program or building an audience or growing your email list where people are doing something because they think they should, where they've been told this is the next step, but where they haven't actually thought strategically or even intentionally about what that would mean for them and why they would do it. And so these are the kinds of questions that I ask. First and foremost, is it meaningful to you? Does it matter to you? If it doesn't, it may not be something you need to spend your time on. Does it make a difference? And this one is more outward looking. Does it make a difference to other people? Is it helping someone else out? Three, is it necessary? Is it even doing what you think it's supposed to be doing? <laughs> says newsletter, gone. Exactly. Unnecessary. And four, does this task harm you or others? And harm here very broadly. So for me, what, what I can classify or categorize as harm is, like I was just saying, too many meetings causes me harm. Am I like actually physically hurt sometimes, but most of the time not, but it's causing me mental anguish in a way that is harmful. Similarly, you can flip that to the other side and say, am I doing something that's hurting someone else? Why the hell would I do that? 
So again, these four questions are super duper simple, but they're really powerful questions for getting underneath of work that can just feel like a requirement for a lot of people or that can just help them better understand work that they've never examined closely before. And it can help people really identify, no, I don't need to be doing that. Or yeah, I need to be doing it, but I can do it differently. Or yes, that task needs to be done, but somebody else can do it, who it will be more meaningful to, or who will be able to make a bigger difference with it. So that's the idea of bullshit jobs, bullshit work, and making and working through how this extra work that we create for ourselves can be how we can remove it from our work. And I feel like we've already answered this question, what's the relationship between bullshit work and value capture? But so much of the work that we do, tracking metrics, the metric tracking itself often, but then the work that we create because of metrics that we're tracking that we don't fully understand or that we haven't fully examined leads to creating bullshit work for ourselves. Like, turning a blog post into a newsletter when nobody buys from your newsletter, right? That's not to say that there isn't a scenario in which that makes sense. There are plenty, but it is to say that's something that should be examined. It's something that we should look closely at and say, why are we doing this? Is this making a difference in some way? Is this meaningful to me? Or am I just checking off a box? Um, so much value capture stuff leads to checking off a box. It me- leads to really misunderstanding opportunity cost, right? So you get fixated on a particular metric. You spend a lot of time trying to move that metric while out over here, you don't realize all of the other stuff that you could be spending time on that would be more meaningful to you or that would create different or better results for you. And so being able to help people see that for what it is really powerful when we're working with folks around their work habits and how they're thinking about their work as well. Okay, we got about 10 minutes and I'd love to go to questions or comments or things you want to hear more about as we start to wrap up here. I had something that just came up if I can. Um, Yeah, please. I was thinking about at the end of my coaching sessions, I write up notes for my clients and that's quite time consuming for me. And I've already written the notes on my notepad and then I go and type them in their file and then they can access it. And I'm too afraid to stop doing it because I'm sure it's valuable to them, but I'm not so sure how valuable it is. Is it valuable enough that it's worth, is it meaningful? Does it make a difference? Is it necessary? Does it harm me? It's an opportunity cost, but also it's, I don't, I don't have, I'm not asking you to decide this for me. It's just something that's come up for me maybe as an example of like, why it's hard to stop those things because you don't always have a black and white answer as to whether you should or shouldn't do something and somebody might buy from an email newsletter so you continue doing that right and it's this yeah i'm sure some clients find it super valuable and some don't and then it becomes a choice on my side so yeah i just wondered what anyone else's thoughts on those kinds of decisions are i think that's a great question I can just say, Ellen, I have played with that over the years. I used to do that for my clients too. And I think it was a way of measuring, like it was a way of, and I think when I started it, I felt like 
when I state my price, which I well, certainly when I started felt was quite high, I was like, well, here's all the stuff you get. Here's the extra stuff around it. Yeah. Measure the worthiness of my prize because there's stuff, mm-hmm. right? That, that's visible rather than really focusing on the actual coaching work. So mm-hmm. I, yeah, that just struck me. You said that and I was like, oh, I feel that. <laughs> I've dropped it since mostly because I was starting to resent it. So yeah. you go, the bullshit work, one of the indicators for me is, do I start to hate doing this? Mm-hmm. That sends an alarm for me. This is bullshit. Thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. Like, um, I, I definitely sell programs of work and you get access to me between sessions and you get X, Y, Z, and it's hard to justify just that unit of time on its own. So the notes looking pretty like that to me is C. <laughs> you get this as well. I also I think, um, go ahead. <laughs> we just keep doing this. I have one client in particular who gets a lot out of my notes and I know she accesses them all the time. And then I have a bunch of other clients that never have ever looked at the notes. And I asked them after, I think it's fine to do it on a case by case basis. Yeah. Maybe at the start of the engagement, just saying, I'm happy to put notes in. Do you think you'll want that? Will that be useful? We read them. Yeah. Thanks. For me, the Kind of the notes and the value and the service stuffing. I think the notes is can be an accessibility issue. And so it, at least for me, I love having notes after. I don't always refer back to them, but I love having them of, oh man, I can't remember what happened. I had this huge breakthrough and now I lost it because I went to eat lunch <laughs> after the session. And how do I get back to it? So I think that to me is one of those really good use cases for an AI recorder that records and summarizes and sends the notes after. So when it's an accessibility issue or I can't freaking remember, I won't go rewatch a session unless I'm going to look for a specific, oh crap, what did so-and-so say? How do I do that? It's a good, from an accessibility standpoint, use of that. But I also always push back on what is valuable in terms of services of frequently it is more valuable to have less in it less for the client to interpret less for them to have to process and deal with Mm -hmm. that's actually more valuable than having all the things extra admin for them but yeah start to feel like the ugly cousin of managerism yeah, yeah it totally can is like over automation it's just because i can yes. doesn't mean it should so mm-hmm. what so i think it's in this idea like for me when i started this idea of quantifying and saying these are the things you get bullet point when i stopped using judgment and started automating and simplifying and then started doing work i resented like i had gotten myself into a loop i had to crack open and i think mm-hmm. what i have to figure out i think you all have to figure out is like how to keep that awareness and attentiveness without burning ourselves out also. But to me, this is like the the two dimensions of this. Like I can say, yes, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to automate it because I can measure it. And then I get to be like a good business owner doobie. But on the other hand, it's, does it actually do something for, am I serving my clients or am I just like playing a game? And am I, are, can we tell it's a relationship? Can we tell if we're getting better, retaining more information and holding on to breakthroughs because we're doing it or we're just doing it because we, thought it looked responsible. So that's my rant. Thank you very much. 
I loved it. Yeah, there's a couple of thoughts that come to mind. I'm uh, now I'm glad you brought up automation because I do think automation is the cousin of managerialism and there's so much stuff that we offload into automation that becomes like we're automating it because it's not important. And yet we're spending time automating it and managing the automation and blah, 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 blah. And so that, yes, part and parcel with the, everything that we've been talking about today. The other thing that comes to mind is process and how process can be related to automation. And that having a clear process, I do this and this for every client, is often efficient. It's a good way to work. It makes things easier for everybody. And there, I think that things can be over-process driven as well, right? Where we, where it can be helpful to say, sometimes clients really appreciate when I take notes for them. Other clients don't care at all. Which camp are you? And part of your onboarding, part of that initial initiation with someone can be a little bit it can be that opportunity to customize things if that's something that you want to do, right? I don't think doing it by on a case-by-case basis is necessary, but it's something to consider. I feel like there was one more thing that I wanted to add. That was the gist of it. I do want to grab Jamie's question here right before we hop off, which is it a bullshit job task if 10% of it is actually helpful? What percentage of it, Nyla asks, is enough? And then Ash comments, an equation. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? I love that exchange. It makes me very happy. And also, I think the like, what if it's a little helpful? What if it's a little, it makes a little bit of a difference? How do you judge that? Anyone have thoughts on that? I guess I think I thought of this originally in a much more macro context than the conversation we've been having, but in the context of the ethics of one's job, I think, working in international development, and there's a whole debate to be had about harm and usefulness, and it's government contracting. So there's a lot of bureaucracy speaking of bullshit jobs. Um, I don't know how people can do that, but can handle the bureaucracy. But anyways, my point was what? Oh, was about justifying their job, even if mm-hmm. this job is pointless, I'm mediocre at it, and it might do harm. But there's like this one piece of it that people can hold on to and say, it might be doing good, or, and you can apply that, it doesn't have to be like the doing good in the world part. It could be, it might be helping my clients, these notes might be helping my clients, and holding on using that step that one piece, that 1% as an excuse to hold on to something and say, this isn't a bullshit job because sometimes it can be, it would be so hard to admit to yourself that you're in a bullshit job or something that you're really, again, to take it onto this level, like some aspect of your business that you've put a lot of time into and you're stuck in kind of a sunk cost situation where you're like, I should really keep doing this because it might be helpful. 
Yeah, that was just yeah. word vomit. I'm not sure what the point of all that was, but just to say that's where that idea came from. <laughs> no, I think it's a great comment. And to your to where you left it there, there's this component of how much autonomy does any one person have in their job, right? And as if we're small business owners or independent workers, we have a lot more autonomy over how we manage ourselves than someone in traditional employment. I think for someone in traditional employment, there's the opportunity, I would say, for some job crafting conversations where, you know, taking the idea of I'm doing this job, I really love that I get to have an impact here. Are there opportunities for me to do more of that? I think with any kind of negotiation around that, there's going to be varying levels of wiggle room, but asking, especially when you're saying like, I'm good at this. This is making a difference. I see where the results are. Being able to show that or being able to describe that in detail, it can't hurt to say, can I do more of that? I don't think that's a performance conversation that's going to end with unintended consequences. It might end in, no, not really. That's not what we hired you for. But I can't imagine it ending in something worse than that. But at least it's an opportunity to move the needle in that direction, or at least to get recognized as those opportunities come, that might be a direction that you can go. All right. It is two. I'm going to wrap things up. I'm glad that I went over the instructions for next week first. You've got your marching orders there. Find us in Clarity Flow if you've got more questions or you just want to keep uh, this particular conversation going. I really appreciate all of your reflection this week on the metrics that capture your attention and your priorities and all of that good stuff. So if you have additional questions, find me in Clarity Flow, shoot me an email. And then otherwise, I will see you back here in two weeks. Thank you all. Bye.